became our inheritance. And, um, and yet we still have to go through this life. We still face trials and temptations and, and different hardships and successes. How do you handle success? Sometimes can be more difficult than handling trials. And, uh, and it's a burden on my heart that uh, we would be a church of a congregation of people that overcome, that are victorious. And, um, and we all, while we, we do fall, there's, there's a need to be victorious. And the, the path to victory is faith. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11. We know that the Bible defines faith for us in verse number one of Hebrews 11. It says, now faith is the substance it's like something in a test tube of things hoped for. Um, the evidence, that's a, um, a, a law term, uh, evidence. They present evidence in the court of law. The evidence of things not seen. Later on in verse number six, it tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And... Um, These Hebrew believers to whom this was written, they were born again, they were saved, but there was some struggle as to at least uh, putting their faith and their confidence and their trust in the the legalism of their day or the laws of their day or their own self-righteousness. And there was this struggle of knowing, well, I'm depending upon Christ for my salvation, but everything else I'm going to depend on myself for. And be self-reliant. I'm going to trust in myself. And so this wonderful passage in Hebrews chapter 11 is, was given to them. I want you to look with me, if you would, to the text. I want to focus on this, this afternoon. It's in verse 23. And I would define, I have defined it before to you like this. Faith is taking God at his word. Faith is taking God at his word. You have to hear it. Uh, But once you've heard it, you have to make a decision, and I have to make a decision. We have to make a decision what we're going to do with what God has said. Are we going to receive it? And if we are, if we do receive it, what are we going to do with it? Are Are you taking him? Am I taking him at his word? And really, taking God at his word is always a choice. It's a choice. But when you and I choose to take God at his word, it produces victory over this world over the temptations that you and I face. And every time when we choose not to take God of this word, it always results in defeat and failure. Every time. Every time. I choose not to take God at his word, not to trust him. We just, Mrs. Scott just played a hymn about trusting the Lord. Every time we choose not to trust him, we don't take him at his word, we don't believe him, that it's going to be all okay. Or we don't believe him that his way is best. It's when we venture out of the path of faith when we fall, when we when we are overcome by temptation. So what kind of choices, I should ask this, does faith make? What does faith look like? And that's what I love about this passage in Hebrews chapter 11, because we really see, we get a good glimpse of what faith rejects. What faith says no to. And, and I think it's very, very practical. And let's read about it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. I'll read down through verse 27. It says this, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. means he was good looking. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming, has the idea of to put much thought into, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. And then finally, verse 27, By faith he, Moses, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him, who is invisible. What are the choices that faith makes? If you and I, because if I were to ask you, do you have faith? What would you say? Well, faith, as I've defined it, is taking God at his word. Faith 
That's the idea of trusting in something. Everybody trusts in something. Everyone believes something. But as it pertains to God's word, do you have faith? Do you have biblical faith? Are you taking God at his word? Am I taking him at his word? Because this is the only kind of faith that pleases God. And if we do, these kind of marks or evidences of faith ought to be showing up in our lives and the decisions that we make. Let's pray, and then we'll look at some evidences of faith in the life of Moses. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, this afternoon. We are full. Uh, we're satisfied when it comes to physical things. Um, Lord, I pray spiritually there'd still be a hunger, a thirsting for truth. Uh, this is, a, I suppose, a well-known subject, this matter of faith. And yet it's one that we struggle with every week. Um, choosing sometimes the things of this world, choosing to follow after our flesh and not taking you at your word. So, Father, I pray that you teach us, encourage us, strengthen us, make up um, fences of protection about us. I pray that as a result of this message and your word, by your spirit in our hearts, that good choices would be made this week by people that are in this room. We, your children, I pray that we would please you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's some very simple application we can take from this passage. We can apply to our lives. I think it's very uh, straightforward, and we can see it in the life of Moses as it pertains to faith. And, and we will look at this this afternoon. But before we get there, I want to take just a brief moment. I want to set a little bit of, uh, I want us to see the bigger picture, a little bit of background this afternoon. One of the questions that the Jewish people, and they were born again, the Hebrews, to whom this penman was writing, the Holy Spirit's message was to these Hebrew believers. And one of the questions they had was about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it went something like this. Well, having grown up in Judaism under the law, and it had been perverted immensely by this time. It wasn't what God had given. It was extra biblical, we could say that. The rabbis had gone beyond what God had put upon the people of Israel. And it had been a heavy yoke of bondage the people of Israel were under. And really it boiled down to, if I can please the people in charge and get their approval, then I'll have heaven. And I'm oversimplifying it perhaps, but that was the gist of it. And so these people, these Hebrew believers who had trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and the forgiveness of their sins, they were still struggling with the belief system that they used to be in bondage to. Does that make sense? Sometimes when a, uh, a person who's been brought up in Catholicism trusts Christ alone for the salvation of their soul, oftentimes they will struggle with bondage to that belief system uh, for many, many years, and I mean many, 20, 30, sometimes the rest of their lives, there's this tendency to going back to, well, I'm going to please God by doing, okay? Um, and the same was true for these Hebrew believers, and this, this was the idea. And so they might have said something like this, well, since salvation, according to the gospel, is by faith, okay? We understand that. Salvation is by faith. Um, isn't, isn't this something new? This, this is, they might have said, isn't this new? This is new revelation. This is something new. Well, now, now let me ask you a question. How are the Old Testament saints saved? By faith. They were saved by faith. By, they didn't know the name of Jesus. The name Emmanuel would have been given. They knew about the Messiah, the promised one. They didn't. They they weren't connecting all of the dots exactly. They didn't understand fully how this was all going to work out. But it, they knew this: that God was going to make a way to save them. That's what they knew, and they took God at His word, trusting Him completely to make a way of salvation. And of course, we know the rest of that story how God did that. But the Old Testament believers were saved by faith. And just like we as New Testament believers are saved by faith, looking backward. But their understanding of the Old Testament and of Judaism was that Judaism 
were, well, it was had been perverted. It was uh, a system of works. And the essence of it was this, that if you're good enough and you're moral enough, and if you observe all of the ceremonies and all of the rituals and do your part to keep the law in an external way and do all the, the required things that the rabbis have added to the scriptures, you will be accepted by God. That was what they were living under. And of course, who could do that? Who? How many people could actually succeed at this? And the answer was nobody. Nobody was succeeding at this. But, it, but really, they were under this impression that it's a matter of your own effort and your own works. And that's what Judaism had become by this time. When, during Jesus' earthly ministry and the time when Hebrews was written. And so when the gospel came along and said that salvation is not found in the keeping of the law, salvation is not found in circumcision, it's not found in your rituals, many of the Jews, even the believing Jews, were struggling with this message. And the penman of Hebrews is pointing out that the salvation of God has always been by faith. Before Jesus Christ was ever crucified, buried and rose again. Salvation was of the Lord, and it was by faith. And after Jesus Christ was crucified and buried and raised from the dead, salvation is by faith in the Lord. And what he says, it's always, salvation has always been by faith in what God says. And I say it that way intentionally because we wouldn't. We could say, well, it's what in what he did. Well, yes, technically, but we wouldn't know what he did if we weren't willing to take him at his word. Are you following? So it really does come down to what has God said, and what am I doing with what He has said? I spoke with a young man this week at my uh, dining room table on Tuesday, and uh, he's struggling with what God says. And it's come to a head. And the struggle is, I, I don't know, speaking for him, he doesn't know if he believes what's being said in the Bible. Well, he has a different set of belief system. He has a whole different belief system. And he has to, at some point in his life, he's going to decide either I'm going to believe, put my faith and my trust in what other people have told me, what my own heart tells me, or I'm going to put my faith and trust in what the Bible tells me. And really, we've all had to do that. So salvation comes by a personal belief in the word of God. And so the faith of Moses, as I've just read it to us here this afternoon, is laid out to show us the kind of choices that genuine biblical faith makes. Because we could all say this morning or this afternoon, you know what? I have faith. I'm a man of faith. We're a family of faith. Uh, we're a church of faith. And I hear a general statement like that from time to time in our world today. I'm a person of faith. I've got my faith. Maybe you've heard someone say something like that. But biblical faith, the kind of faith that pleases God, is taking God at his word. And that's just not intellectually or mentally. It actually, taking God at his word, biblical faith actually produces something. And sometimes some, in the face of great opposition and much temptation, biblical faith will cause us to do some incredible things. And it does so in the life of Moses, and I want to look at it here this afternoon. Uh, look, first of all, as we think about this, uh, what kind of choices will we make in our lives if they're choices of faith? I notice, first of all, in Moses' life from the passage, that faith rejects the world's prestige. Faith rejects the world's prestige or reputation. Look at verse 24 of our passage. He says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused, when he, when he had grown up, he was a man, he could kind of do what he wanted to do, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, we have to answer a question, well, how did Moses become the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Okay, so hold your place in Hebrews chapter 11. Go back, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 in your Bibles. 
I might keep you moving a little bit this afternoon just to help keep you awake. I know you want to be awake. Some of you are fighting so hard. I'm so proud of you. In fact, before we get to, we're going to, we're going to hop around even more than I thought. Instead of going to Genesis 12, hold your place there. We'll come back to it. Go to Exodus 1 first. Exodus chapter 1. I promise not to change my mind again in the next 30 seconds. How did Moses become the son of Pharaoh's daughter? You know that? Here's how we're going to read about it. Exodus chapter 1, verse number 6. And I'm going to read all the way down through chapter 2 and verse 10. I'll try to read with some expression, okay? Exodus 1, verse 6. says, And Joseph died, you remember him, and all his brethren and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied. And of course, the people of Israel are in Egypt at this time, but they have freedom. And they waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, we would know of him as a pharaoh, which knew not Joseph. Remember, the, the former pharaoh had been friends with Joseph. He esteemed Joseph highly, gave Joseph this uh, powerful position in the land of Egypt. Look at verse 9. And this new king said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than, mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it came to pass that when they... There falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore, they did set over them, the Israelites, taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted the Israelites, the more the Israelites multiplied and grew. They were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. So now we have the Israelites are now in slavery and actually in bondage in Egypt. They hadn't been under Joseph, but they are now. Uh, Look in verse 14. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives of the which the name of the one was Shifra, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, they were birthing stools, where the uh, Hebrew ladies would have their babies, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And did not, as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. We could just stop right there and talk about that. Those Hebrew midwives, they feared God more than they feared the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And they, he, they didn't obey the wicked command of Pharaoh. They obeyed their conscience. They obeyed what God would have wanted them to do. How many times in our lives do we fear do we fear God more than we fear our own fleshly desires? How many times do we do what we want to do instead of doing what we know we should do? It's amazing here. These women were willing to risk their lives to obey the Lord. Verse 18, And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? Why aren't you killing the male babies? He asked. Verse 19, And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not of the Egyptian women, for they are lively means vigorous and are delivered ere the midwives come in and, un, and, and unto them. The, the babies are already born before you even get there. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people continued to multiply and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. God blessed them because they feared God. Verse 22, And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. And there went a man of the house of Levi, and took to wife the daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bare a son. How many of you, by the way, would have wanted to have babies during this time in this place? Can you imagine the stress? This would, I mean, we read about this. It's a Bible story, right? And we're all full and we're in padded chairs. You know, it's like, yeah, we know what's happening. But think, imagine being there 
And the king is, if you have a baby boy, everyone's been commanded, take the baby boy, if he's a Jewish boy, and throw him into the water to drown him and kill him, or maybe feed the, the crocodiles with him. Verse number two, and the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him that he was a goodly child, just means he was good looking, she hid him three months. Um, I don't want to stop here, but his parents exercised faith. Hebrews 11 uh, leads us to believe that, by the way. And it wasn't, I, the Bible doesn't say anything about um, Moses' parents being visited by an angel. The, the Bible doesn't say that they, they hid Moses because it was for fear of Pharaoh or it was for fear of God. It, it just says that they looked at this little child that God had given them, this beautiful little baby boy. And for no other reason than that, this was a gift from God, this little beautiful baby boy. And it, he meant everything to them. It, it wasn't that God had revealed somehow to them that this was Moses and this was going to be the man who was going to lead the people of Israel out of bond. No, the Bible doesn't tell us anything about that, that they knew anything to that extreme. It was just that God had given us something beautiful and special. And you know what? We're going to treasure what God has given us. Now, most of us aren't having babies right now. Some are. But you know what? All of us here have been given many wonderful, precious, beautiful gifts and treasures from God. You know what? We ought to exercise some faith like Moses' mom and dad exercised, looking at what God has given us and just saying, you know what? This, what we have is beautiful. What we have is amazing. It's wonderful. And, and we're not going to throw that away, even though the world and the culture are demanding that we throw some of those things away. Let's go. Verse 3. And when she could not, no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime with pitch and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. So kind of in the, the reeds in the, near the river there. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. Isn't that an interesting statement? Go watch your brother floating in this little basket and, let, and bring back and tell me what happens to him. Okay, that's not babysitting 101, verse 5. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself. Now, are you realizing what's happening here? The Pharaoh has said, kill all the baby boys of the Israelites. Here's Pharaoh's daughter uh, coming down to wash herself in the river. Here's Moses' sister. There's Moses as a baby boy in the basket floating along in the reeds. Verse 5, and the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river and her maidens walked alongside the riverside, or along by the riverside. And when she saw the ark, wonderful word there, among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. Babies do that, right? And she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now her own father had told her to do what? Throw the baby into the river. She looks at this baby she says, this is one of the Hebrews' babies. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, this is Moses' sister speaking, shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for thee? So the Pharaoh's daughter couldn't nurse the baby. And, and Moses' big sister steps in and says, you want me to find uh, one of the Hebrew ladies to nurse this baby for you, ma'am? <laughs> I mean, this is wonderful. Verse 8, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she called his name Moses. And she said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now, go back to Hebrews. Or nope, don't go there yet. Go to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, something important I need to touch on in Genesis 12 so we'll understand why Moses was willing to do the right things as he grows up. So how did Moses become the son of Pharaoh's daughter? We just read that. Somewhere during Moses' life, he was taught some promises of God, some promises that God had given from him, from God to his people, the people of Israel. Now, um, it's possible that Pharaoh's daughter who found Moses, it's possible that she might have let 
She didn't know it, but Moses' mom keep him, not just while she was nursing him, but also as he got a little bit older. You know, he's just a little guy, maybe even upwards to 11 or 12 years of age. It's possible. I think it's very probable, actually, because Moses knew what the promises of, God's, of God, uh, Moses understood the promises of God to his people Israel, okay? And what were some of the promises that God had made to his people Israel? And these, are the, these, would, these would have been some of the promises that Moses mother would have taught him. Look at Genesis chapter 12 and look at verse, uh, verse 1 there. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. This this would have been one of the promises that Moses' mom would have taught her little son. Moses, sit down, or maybe they were working together. Moses, there's something I need to tell you. You're a part of a special group of people. We're God's people. We're the nation of Israel. We're the people of Abraham. And there's some very special things that God, that Jehovah told Father Abraham regarding you and me and and us in, in this land of Egypt. And she would have probably quoted or recited from something like that. Look over to chapter 13. You're still in Genesis. Look over to chapter 13 and verse 15. Chapter 13 and verse 15. God speaking, he says, For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land and the length of it and the breadth of it, and I will give it unto thee. And he's speaking again to Abraham. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Look over to chapter 15, still in Genesis chapter 15. We're almost back to Hebrews. Chapter 15, and look at verse number 18. Verse number 18. It says, In the same day the Lord made a covenant unto Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Gergesites, and the, and the Jebusites, okay? So these would have been the promises that Moses' mom would have taught Moses. Now, he's just a little boy, but he's about to be raised by Pharaoh's daughter, okay, in Pharaoh's court. Now, look with me all the way back to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to see some choices that Moses made by faith, by faith, just by taking God at his word. And the first one was faith rejects the world's prestige. We read about it in verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 11. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, what does it mean to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Let's think about that for just a few moments. Uh, Because here it tells us that he refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He, He comes a point in his life as he gets older where he says, you know what? Don't call me Pharaoh's grandson. Don't call me the grandson of the most powerful man in the world. Wouldn't you like to be the grandson of the most powerful man in the world? He had a few chariots. He had a lot of wealth. He was popular, one way or the other. He was powerful. I bet you his grandchildren could probably get away with just about anything they wanted. You know, they probably got a lot of really cool things for their birthday. I don't know. But, you know, I know this. I think most people would like to be the grandchild of the most powerful person in the world. But there came a point in Moses' life where he said, you know what? I don't want to be called that anymore. That's not who I am. That's not who I am. You know, Moses would have been indoctrinated. He would have been taught instructed in the Egyptian way of thinking. In Acts chapter 7, and verse 22, the Bible says this, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. So not only had Moses been educated in the promises of God by his mother, by his mother, his birth mother, he had also been educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now, what was he going to, what, what way of training was going to grip his heart? What kind of teaching, which teaching, the teaching of his uh, stepmother, Pharaoh's daughter, she had taught him how to be a grandson of Pharaoh. 
She had taught him all these things. He, he was learned in all of these things. What, what was Moses going to do? Was he going to go with what his stepmother, Pharaoh's daughter, had taught him? Or was he going to hold on to what his birth mother had taught him? And she had only had him for a short period of time, frankly, maybe 12 years. What, what way of thinking was going to determine what Moses was going to do? One commentator talks about Moses reaching the age of maturity at 40. You know, it's interesting how we do continue to grow with age, and we do tend to continue to mature with age. Um, we do. And, and Moses was growing. He was reaching this age of maturity. But he still, even though he's 40, he faces a really big decision. Uh, and just because he's 40, it wasn't determined because he's 40, he's going to make the right choice. I've learned that just turning 40 doesn't mean I make right choices all the time. So here's, here's Moses, and he's 40 years of age. What choice is he going to make? Is he going to choose the way of the Egyptians with all of its power and prestige and popularity? Or is he going to choose what his mother has taught him? Frankly, some pretty vague promises that he wasn't there to hear. I mean, think about this. He's got all the stuff. He has it. It's his. He's enjoying enjoying it. It's not a dream. You know, when I was a boy, I could remember winning multiple NBA national championships in my backyard. You know, sometimes I'd team up. Before there were all these power teams with, you know, multiple three, three or two or three all-star NBA players. Boy, I had multiple power teams in my backyard, and I was one of the two or one of the three. You know, David Robinson and I would win a couple of national championships, and then I'd get traded and play with Michael Jordan for a little while and beat David Robinson. I mean, it's just what we did in the Ferguson backyard, you know. But none of those things ever belonged to me. I wasn't the right height. I didn't have the right athleticism. I didn't have their income. I didn't have the abilities. It was just fantasy world for Seth Ferguson in the backyard. It wasn't real. It wasn't mine. But I dreamed about it. I longed for it. I wanted it. Moses didn't have to dream about it. He had it. And now he has to choose something that he has, that he has, that he can physically count and number and look at. He can feel it. He can enjoy it. And he's got to make a choice between the things he can actually touch and feel and enjoy and the things, some promises his mother taught him that someone called Abraham received from God. See the problem here? There, he's going to have a choice to make. And you know what? We all have that choice to make. Either we're going to walk by faith and believe what God has said, so much so that we let it begin to determine and influence the decisions that we make. That's faith. Or I'm going to say, you know what, that's really nice, that sounds good, but you know what, I can hold on to this happiness. I can hold on to this pleasure. This is something I can feel. And you know what, I'm going to choose what I can feel. I can choose, I'm going to choose that. And that's where Moses was. He's learned all these things. He's been fully absorbed into the Egyptian culture. But he's got this dilemma in verse 24. And he chooses to refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You know that Moses, to do this, he had to reject the Egyptian way of thinking. And this is the first point in Moses' life that he rejected the world's prestige. We don't know anything about Moses, so to speak, doing this or making this kind of decision earlier in his life. This is the very first point in Moses' life. He's 40 years of age, and he decides, you know what? I'm going to reject what I have for a promise that God has made. Moses was considered the grandson of the most powerful man on the earth. I don't know what could have possibly have been more prestigious in those days than to be related to Pharaoh. It was the most sophisticated culture on the earth at that time in society. He had lived in it for decades. He understood the honors of being a prince. He understood the status. 
He understood the comforts. He understood what it was like to be served by the servants, the power he would have, the wealth he had, the privileges he had. And here he is, and he's faced with this decision. Should he hold on to the prestige of the the world, or should he reject what he was enjoying for the promises of God, Jehovah, to a man named Abraham, to a people called the Israelites? Power, prestige, fame, it all belonged to him as a prince. He had it. It wasn't something like me in my backyard dreaming up, dreaming about something, wanting something I don't, I didn't have. No, he had it. He had it. And then this makes this so very powerful to me as an illustration that if he could walk by faith, giving up what he had for what he did not have, then you know what? You and I can walk by faith too giving up on some fantasies and fairy tales of dreams, worldly lust, fleshly lust, for things that he has given us and that we have already, even in part. You know, most people live their whole lives chasing things that they won't even have the chance to have. They live their lives for the chase, they don't, even, they don't ever even attain it. They live their lives for the, the chase. But Moses wasn't in the chase. He had it, and he gave it up. And in, 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 in doing so, he chooses to identify with a bunch of slaves, with a nation of slaves, because they were God's people and because God had a plan for them. And he said, in essence, you know what? I'm going to give up everything that I have for something that I really don't know, I look around and I just see you all in poverty, under oppression, being told what to do every day of your lives. But you're my people and your God is my God and his promises to you are his promises to me. And I believe him to be true and his word to be true. And you know what? I'm choosing him. It's amazing. It's an amazing illustration. Faith rejects the world's prestige. Look at verse 25. It rejects the world's pleasure, too. Verse 25, he says, Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Seasons come and go, don't they? I think winter winter is here right now in mid-Michigan. A little bit of snow a little bit of thaw, a lot of slop and mud. You send your kids out to play in this kind of weather around here, it's like sending them to play out in the mud. They come back in. But seasons, thankfully, in Michigan come and go. Sin can be pleasurable. Sin can be satisfactory for a period of time, but only for a period of time. The pleasure of sin is only for a little while. The costs for sin are great. And Moses, in our passage in verse 25, it says that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. What is it that he chose? Well, slavery, in a sense, to be oppressed, to be looked down upon, to be thought little of. This is what he chose instead of enjoying flesh and trying to live to fulfill the lust of his flesh. Thirdly, notice verse 26, faith rejects the world's plenty. Now, this is what faith does. It's what it looks like. It rejects the world's prestige to take God at his word. It rejects the world's pleasure to take God at his word. It rejects the world's plenty. Look at verse 26. He says, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Esteeming there means to account or to think. And I love this about Christianity, about the Bible. Um, You and I are called to think. We are called to engage our brains. Each day of every day of every week, we are to engage our brains and we're to consider what we know the word of God to be. 
And even this passage that we're looking at this afternoon, this week as we go into this week, there are going to be situations where our flesh is, we're going to be tempted of our own flesh. We're going to be drawn away of our own flesh. And God, by his Holy Spirit, is going to bring back to our memory what Moses did. And we're going to be reminded of what Moses did. And not just Moses, but so many other children of God and so many other believers and so so many other men and women who who were born again, who were saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you and I are going to be finding ourselves, we're going to be tempted in a certain matter, and we're going to be reminded, you know what, of what God has said in his word about Moses. You know what, I'm going to take him at his word. We're to esteem. He esteemed. He thought this through. And I can just imagine him doing this, counting the cost and going, wait, if I follow Jehovah, what? I'm going to lose everything. If I, if I believe what my mother taught me when I was a little boy, I'm mean, just a little boy. I believed those stories when I was a little boy. But I've been living in Pharaoh's house. I've been living in Pharaoh's houses for the last 30 years of my life. But I'm a reasonable adult. And those are those childhood stories of the Bible, of the Hebrews, of Ab- Father Abraham and Joseph and the promises of God to the Israelites. Am I really going to believe those things? Those only ten. You and I are going to be faced with that this week. Are we really going to believe what God has said in his word? Or are we going to believe what we can touch and hold on to, and I encourage you, esteem, think think about it. Don't be rash. Don't come to a rash conclusion. Be careful, consider, ponder these things. And he says that he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Why? It says in verse 26, for he had respect. He had respect. And the word respect there means his eyes were fixed upon And the idea is that his eyes were fixed upon the promises of God and not the riches of Egypt. His eyes were fixed. The hymn writer wrote, my faith has found a resting place. Something I can, someone I can trust. The ever living one. That's true for salvation. It also is true for sanctification. It is true for this week. Our eyes, our gaze ought to be fixed. Our gaze should have found a a fixed, a resting place, a goal. The reproach of Christ, the righteousness of, of, of Christ, the holiness of God. Says that he had respect under the recompense of the reward. He knew what the goal was. And even though Egypt was the most powerful and wealthy nation in the world at that time, by by faith he refused that life. And he makes this major, life-altering decision, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than than the treasure in Egypt. He esteemed what God had said and what God had, something in the future, yet future, to be more valuable than anything he could have at that time in his life. Anything he could have. You know what our culture says? Get what you can right now and get all of it that you can right now. Because your life is short. You don't know how much life you're going to have to live. So you better get your happiness and get it while you can. And I don't care who you have to run over to get it. You take anything you can get. It wasn't Moses. And that's not God-honoring faith. Faith says, this is what you say, Lord. That's not what I'm feeling. That's not what I'm seeing. But that's what you say. And so I'm going to esteem the reproach of Christ of greater value than the things I can grab a hold of. There's one last truth. Look at verse 27. And that's this. Faith rejects the world's pressure. It rejects the world's pressure. It rejects the world's prestige, pleasure, plenty, and finally pressure in verse 27. And we're not going to finish all of this this afternoon, but look at verse 27. It says there, by faith, he forsook, means to renounce or to reject as having any power in his life. He forsook Egypt. You're not going to tell me 
what to do anymore. He rebelled against the right thing, by the way. Maybe I should say he rebelled against the wrong things. He says he forsook it. He forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. And we all understand that, right? I mean, after all, who would be afraid of any old king, you know? Most powerful guy in the world. I mean, who cares? Right? No. The problem here is the king would have known who Moses was. And I'm reminded that the evil one knows who you are, too. And me. And he has a plan for you, and he has a plan for me. But Moses forsakes Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, he patiently endured at seeing him who is invisible. And here's the truth. Moses was presented with this high-pressure situation in verse 27. Now remember, Moses had killed an Egyptian who was hurting one of the Israeli slaves earlier in his life. And then Moses, you remember, fled to Midian where he stayed for 40 years. And of course, at that point in his life, he wasn't looking to go back to Egypt. He could never go back to Egypt again. That would have been risking his life. In Exodus chapter 4 tells us that. But he did. And you remember the burning bush? The, the burning bush? He does go back to Egypt. And you remember, we won't take time to turn there, but back in Exodus chapter 3, Moses makes several excuses to God. I can't speak. There's no way I can do this. And you know what? You and I are going to be faced with excuses like that as well. You know, Lord, I know what you're asking me to do, but God, I don't know if you realize this or not, but I can't do what you're asking me to do. Ever been there? I know what you're asking me to do. You're asking me to be faithful. You've set before me a course in my life. But Lord, have you, have you seen who I am? Do you know who I am? Do you know my weaknesses? I can't do this. That's where Moses was. I can't do this. But ultimately we find Moses boldly delivering the message of God to Pharaoh, right? Forty years he's been living in the land of Midian as a shepherd. Just the kind of training you want for your foreign ambassador. Forty years. And now he walks back into Pharaoh's palace and he's got no army. Moses has no weapon. He's facing a proud, haughty, pagan, arrogant monarch who reigns over the greatest empire in the world. And in boldness, Moses walks right into the court and looks Pharaoh in his face, and he delivers not his demands, but God's demands. Let my people go. All this is natural, everyday, run-of-the-mill stuff, right? And he tells Pharaoh he'd better respond or it's not going to go well. It didn't take long, did it? First the waters turned to blood, then the frogs came, and then the dust was turned to lice, and then the flies, and I think they were of the biting variety. And then the death of the livestock, and then the ashes produced boils on man and beast, then the thunder and hail and fire and the locusts, then the darkness, and then the death of the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. Moses, in the end, though, did not let the pressure, the wrath of the king, keep him from obeying the Lord. Sometimes I let pressure keep me from obeying the Lord. All of us are tempted to give in when we face pressure. Moses was under intense pressure to conform. Just fit in. It's already you. It's who you are. You've been doing this for 30 years. This is who you are. Be who you are. Live like the world. Enjoy it. It's yours. It belongs to you. But he doesn't do that. And he stands there before Pharaoh and he declares the will of God, let my people go. And where did Moses get this kind of faith? Where did he get this kind of courage? Hebrews 11, verse 27, the latter part says he endured. It means to be strong, to be patient as seeing him who is invisible. He endured. He endured and he overcame just by believing what God had said and trusting that God would do what he said he would do. God, you said 
that you have a land for your people. And now he's traipsing out of Egypt with how many people? Heading up to a land that they weren't waiting with open arms. Come right on in. He took how many people? Godly people, spiritual people, thankful people. Moses, what can I do to help you? No. Can't we go back? What kind of a leader are you? You know, how did he do all this? How did he go stand for the powerful, most powerful man in the, year, in the world and say, God says, let my people go. He did so because he believed what God said. He trusted the Lord. You know what? You and I can do this. You and I cannot do all that he has asked us to do, but we can trust the one who can. And I know you can do that because most of you in this room already have done that. And it has produced the salvation of your soul from death and hell. And so tomorrow, you can do that again, one step at a time. I'm going to put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today. To give me wisdom to make right choices. I'm going, to make, I'm going to put my faith and trust in the Lord right now in this situation to overcome the temptation that is just pressing in upon me. I've already done it before. And I can do it again. And you can too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the witnesses of your salvation. Men like Moses who witnessed your deliverance and your salvation in his life by faith. Lord, we have been saved by your grace and by faith, through faith. And Lord, we, we want to experience more of your mighty salvation in our lives, and we need it. So Father, guard your people. Guard us. We belong to you. We're your heritage. You have purchased us. You have bought us. We belong to you. And Lord, we live in the sinful world and we have this wicked flesh. Lord, I ask for your might and your strength. But we know the victory is by faith. So, Father, in childlike faith, I pray that we would take you at your word. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Lord bless you.